Hello, and welcome to this month's bonus episode, Coffee and Cocktail. My name is Casey Shad, and I'll be your guest host. In this episode, we'll be trying something a bit different by putting Dr. Ann Wan in the hot seat. Dr. Ann Wan, thank you for joining us on your show, Coffee and Cocktails. Thanks for having me on my show. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so uh, I want to start with the reason why I'm dying to interview you because you and I have been in the process of talking about you know your um, launching a creative uh, consulting slash tutoring business and creativity is such a priceless commodity especially in this ever-changing market space so I wanted to um, just kind of pick your brain and learn more about you know how are you fashioning your consultancy based on your experience at the oldest and the best university in the world, Oxford University? So in this episode, we will be exploring the following themes. You know, what is creativity? How do um, we become comfortable in the unknown? Um, uh, and my dogs are kind of like... That's okay. Active. We all have dogs. Dogs, children, <laughs> colds. We're good. Exactly. Um, You're doing great. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. It's my first time. <laughs> We're always nervous when it's our first. <laughs> yeah, it's always me too. Oh, man. Um, and then, like, why should you be BFF with the gatekeepers? And finally, why do academics make the best creative practitioners for businesses? So, uh, as per usual, um, we'll start off by having you tell us what you're uh, drinking for the show and a little bit by yourself. Dr. Anwan, you start. Yes. So I am having water. It's always my drink of choice, um, which means I always need the restroom, but at least I'm awake. Yeah. I had my coffee and my tea earlier. So uh, now I'm having having water. I may swish into wine later. You never know. So yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. I'm having coffee. Um, I know. I'm curious like, what? For the... You're right. It's like eight hours ahead, aren't you? A bit ahead of me. Uh, or behind me. Behind, You're behind me. Yeah, behind. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. We're the most Western of the Western culture uh, societies mm-hmm. the, with the hours. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm curious, like, why do British love tea so much? Or is it I, like more popular than coffee? Yeah, it is more popular than coffee. So, I mean, I don't know the history. I'd have to get my husband up here. But I think a lot of mm-hmm. it comes down to the tea trade industry um Mm -hmm. it was at the west indian trade company i think is what Mm -hmm. it was called yeah Um, boston um, yeah so that always gets me going you know when you have these like anti-immigrant so-and-sos and and i go back to where you came from i'm like yeah well they'll just bring their tea and they'll take it back with them too so you know there's i think there's a lot of influence obviously from southeast Mm -hmm. asia and Mm -hmm. it just got incorporated into the culture and i think in Mm -hmm. the u.s we embraced more of the Italian side of drinking with coffee being like the go-to. Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, that that is my normal drink of choice is a really nice coffee, nice bitter coffee in the morning. So a little bit of a You know, I'm such a bad agent for asking this question, but I'm always confused when people say Southeast Asia. Do they, do they mean India or like so, Indo-China region area? So this like is Vietnam. the thing, right? So growing up in the U.S., when somebody said Asia... Uh-huh. I was like, yeah. oh, China. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm yeah. so naive. China or yeah. Korea or wherever, yeah. right? 
And then uh, um, I moved to the UK and I'd say Asian. They're like, oh, from Pakistan. I'm like, I'm sorry. Oh, so they wow. will say, oh, you mean East Asian. I'm like, we're going to go that far. <laughs> they wow. distinguish yeah. themselves a bit more. And so I've had to kind of get used to that a bit as I didn't. Yeah. Asia is a very large continent. So, okay, fair enough. East yeah. Asia, Asia, West Asia, however you want to call it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I, I they all, they always lump India with the Thailand from Thailand, Vietnam, and you know Laos and Philippines. Like I think that's because of Southeast Asia region or something. Here it's normally um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, India, uh, Nepal as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, oh, got it. Yeah, you can. I mean, there's oh, also more countries ignorance. involved yeah. in that, but general idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so my background is both in academic and in business. And I can tell you from personal experience that, you know, my academic training in social sciences give me a huge edge in delivering creative audience insights and customer behaviors and looking at, you know, um, you know, research in terms of like what motivated people to do certain things. So um, and in the the and I found in my experience that creative energy really comes from thinking outside the box. And the best way to prepare you to think outside the box is actually in academia. And um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about, you know, comparing notes with you on your experience with, you know, consulting uh, organizations, businesses, and, you know, mentoring students and, and your experience in um, like coupled with my experience in audience intelligence and market research. So you start first and then I'll jump in. That's a huge <laughs> question. question. It's like, could you just tell me about the world and then your experience <laughs> with the world and then we'll go Two from seconds. there. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got um, I will try my best. Um, so yes, I think that academics don't give themselves enough credit for being creative. Um, I think that you find people over time that fall into two camps. You find those that are like the academic track is the track for me. And even though there are no jobs and there's lots of job precarity and sadness and everything else, I'm going to tunnel my way through because that's the only way I will be successful. Mm -hmm. And then you have that other branch that's also quite broad who maybe wanted to go into academia, but they have familial responsibilities. They don't want to be nomadic, whatever. Um, they want a pension <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> And they've had to go, okay, what now? So I fall into the what now category where I went into academia. I wanted to be a lecturer. My background's in education. I, I love teaching. I think it's probably mm -hmm. one of the most rewarding jobs on earth. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I was under this assumption that um, I get my doctorate and I would work my way towards some permanent post. And before people start giggling, um, I, I did believe that. And it's because I didn't know. And it's because nobody talked. Um, academia, um, as much as people try to say otherwise, is a pyramid scheme. And it is a pyramid scheme. And it is one of those where we pay a lot of money, time and effort with the idea that if we work hard, we will get those jobs. And what happens mm -hmm. is we find ourselves in excessive amounts of debt and there are no jobs. And when you find yourself in a situation where you're out of lots and lots of money, you know, you don't want to just say, well, I'm giving up, right? Because you don't want to be called a quitter. 
Um, yeah. But again, I think COVID, I think the uh, crisis in 2008, a myriad of other reasons, we've had to mm-hmm. um, start making some really tough decisions. Mm-hmm. And I have... Hashtag choices. Hashtag choices. Um, I've had to start thinking about what does that look like? So yeah. to tie into your thing about creativity, I've had to be creative. Mm-hmm. And what I've realized is that... Uh, and we talked about this earlier, about how as academics, um, to create uh, something like a PhD or even a master's thesis, you're mm-hmm. having to create something new out of thin air. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at all the work that's ever been created on Earth at the moment to date, or at least you're trying to, and you have to create something different. Yeah, and that takes yeah. a lot of creativity. You know, mm-hmm. how much has been done on this project? What could I do that's different? How could I stand out? How could I put together, you know, a, a substantial piece of work? Yes, mm-hmm. it's hard. Yes, it's exhausting. But that ability to think beyond and to think differently than others is a huge asset. So, you know, if you look at those skill sets, it, it, it helps to realize that um, we're more than just what, we're, what we think we're expected to be. So, you know, yes, we might have wanted to get that academic career that doesn't exist, um, but maybe there's something else out there I hadn't considered that might be possible, that might even be just as rewarding, if not more so, hopefully. Um, so how can I use that creative mindset, that open-mindedness in order to make that possible or at least try to make that possible? Wow. Yeah. Like, I feel like sometimes the open-mindedness is it's kind of not to get like 40, but letting go of your ego and kind of like really dive deep and like really pivot because a lot of times doing the PhD process, like get it done. That's your yes. ultimate thing. And actually, that's a really good driver for looking creatively. Um, yeah. Um, and your dog agrees. Your dog's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she, the, the, like, she's ground. And I'm going to yes. kill the postman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and each other. Play. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, um, yeah, the most inconvenient time. I, I guess, because I... I always thought I was going to marry a rich, handsome man and have lots of babies so I didn't have to worry about the finances mm-hmm. until yeah, finally when I graduated. Yeah, of course. You know, I want to be a MILF. Um, um, <laughs> Dr. MILF. <laughs> Dr. MILF. Um, and uh, when, I, when I graduated, it was like, oh, shoot. I, I just moved to LA and LA is so expensive to live. It's yeah. horrible. Um, yeah. Beautiful city, but so expensive. So it's like, I need to find a job that I'm remotely interested because I learned, I love learning about people, but you know, that I could tolerate. And I found a job in um, e-commerce working for cars.com and looking at audience insights. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's like, it's people. You're like, I just study people. And um, you know, and, and that's my foray into um, uh, the business world. And I, I, it's so weird. I, I like, I can see what you're saying about being a pyramid scheme and I totally agree with it because I'm going to be dead for life. But at the same time, like if I had to redo, I would do the same thing too. Because mm. the education that I got, I, I can see huge competitive advantage. It's a privilege. I think that's the thing. It's yeah. a privilege and an honor. Right. And, yeah. and that's yeah, what yeah. I, I want to make clear is, is I, I wouldn't trade my doctor for anything to be able to, to say that I have that. And I think that that is an amazing thing to have. I just think that it's a shame that 
a lot of tough lessons are learned as a consequence of that. And it's like anything, you take the good Ooh, with the bad, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's, but it's being prepared for what the bad might look like that can maybe mm -hmm. help you in your decision making. And I don't think I was fully aware. I, I made a choice to be naive about that. And that was my own fault. Um, and so I'm having to learn from that. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. a big reason the, that I established the podcast in the first place is I didn't want other people yeah. to feel naive. I wanted them to know that there was right, a safe right. place where they could learn about these things in private and, and not mm -hmm. be judged for it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so in our previous conversation, you mentioned that Oxford was literally pivotal in helping you kind of harness your creativity the way they're, they taught you. So what are what are the oxford tutorials and like why has this method of teaching been so effective in training like countless global leaders including yourself in being creative yeah so um the oxford tutorial system it's actually not something that i um i wasn't a student in and i actually went in um having to teach it and i'd never actually i, I, I wasn't a bachelor student at oxford so i was coming in mm -hmm. from the top down so to speak mm -hmm. um but what um, what I learned about this system that was so effective, and it's something that Oxford and Cambridge should be very, very proud of, is that they really try to focus on the individual. And I think it's one of those situations where students, in my mind, are really getting their money's worth. Where, mm -hmm. you know, you have a lot of universities that, um, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily a right or a wrong, but it's very easy to get lost, is what I'm trying to say. It's very easy to become a number rather than a person. And the thing about the mm -hmm. Oxford tutorial system, which Cambridge also has their own version of that, is they create these either one-to-one -one or up to one-to-three, um, what they call tutorials, where students are given weekly essay assignments and a set of reading. So when mm -hmm. I was doing anthropology tutorials and I was working with students in the humanities and social sciences, and they were bachelor mm -hmm. students, they would have a writing prompt that they would be given the week before. So in the U.S. system, to give some of the listeners and, and viewers sort of a, an understanding, uh, in the U.S., information many times is spoon-fed to students. So the professor will tell you what your reading is about before you actually read it, which means a lot of students just don't end up doing the readings. And they will say, you know, here's a topic of this week. Let's say something light like Marxism. And they'll tell you everything you need to know about Marxism. And then they'll say, here are the readings of Marxism. And the students will go, eh, I'll just study the PowerPoint. And they don't have to do that extra amount of work. In an Oxford tutorial system, they will say, they'll give you an essay question, say, and you might have to write 2,000 words. So that's like anywhere from, I don't know, four to six pages. Um, you know, why was Marx so revolutionary to world leaders in the early part of the 19th or 20th century? And then they'll give you a reading of like six to eight articles. And those articles might be, each one might be anywhere from like 10 to 30 pages each. And you have one week to answer that question and write that essay. And they don't tell you what the answer is. You have to figure out the answer. You're the one that has to study and figure it out for yourself. And then the tutor will read the assignment, um, make some comments to see whether or not you're on the right track, whether or not you know how to use an argument, whether or not you know how to read academic text. And then they will spend that tutorial talking through how you came to that answer and have a, like an intense discussion playing devil's advocate about, you know, you said you, you thought Marxism was this, but this reader actually said it was that. So why did you come across the reading in a different way? And why was that your interpretation? So you're really causing the student to really think about how they came to those answers, why they might have come to those conclusions. And it puts them in the hot seat. 
but not in an aggressive sort of way. It's so that they can't hide and and being forced not to hide, they're being forced to actually have to think for themselves and be an individual thinker and researcher. And the whole point of going to Oxford is, you know, you you need to prove that we made the right choice. And so yeah. we're going to push you, but we're going to push you in a way so that when you finish, you're going to be so much stronger and so much um, more independent and, and such a better thinker than when you first mm-hmm. started. And that's where I mm-hmm. think the real power comes behind these tutorials. And, and it's the whole reason why people, got, myself included, I came out of the doctorate just feeling like, you know, yeah, okay, there's inferiority complex, but flip me, like I'm a world expert, like who would have thought? And it, it builds you up to that standard to go, well, maybe I can do that. And I think that's a good thing. Wow. Um, no, what you were saying kind of got, got, got me thinking about, um, it, it was a, one of the jobs I had, it was, um, it was my, like I just joined the company, it was one of the major projects that we're pitching to a client. And it was an internal meeting with like 40 of us. And I, it, my part was about how do we reconstruct the analyze the customer like audience. And so I was saying, and it was like presenting my method and the head honcho, he jumped in the call. It's like, no, this is wrong. The client would like this. You know, why did we do this? And it was just like, like, he's basically forcing me to defend my argument. And at that moment, like, oh my gosh, I feel so embarrassed. Like, oh sh- crap. Like these are my new colleagues and my big bosses. And they're just telling me my method was wrong. <laughs> so like, I, I totally agree with that part. So, but then I thought it was okay, what is he try, really trying to say? And I am, I know I'm right in what I'm saying. So like, how can I like articulate that? So, um, so I mean, that moment right on, because it was all about like, how do you, def- I don't say defend, but like, how do you make cases for your arguments? And so I went on a whole spiel about like my logic for why that happened and why the case might be changed the way of thinking and it's kind of different. So how do we like pivot? And um, and a lot of that happens in in business too, because like a lot of times you have to provide the context for what you're thinking. And um, and a lot of people don't think about the context. It's just like, here, here, here it is. Here's a work, here's insight. And that's it. And go with it. Um, um, uh, and, uh, that, that's interesting. Um, do you think what, what happens if like you're wrong? Like, how do you, like, it's like, what, what, what happens if like your logic is faulty? Oh, my logic was faulty all the time. <laughs> I mean, my, <laughs> my supervisor, I mean, if we step out from the tutorials and we just talk about the doctoral program, I mean, there was no hand holding. It's like, oh, you want my hand? Oops, sorry. Yeah. I didn't catch you. Have fun on the fall down. So, you know, my, my supervisor's classic right. line, and I, I could tease him about it later, but at the time I was sobbing my eyes out, is he, I would send, I'd be working my tail off on some assignment, and then I'd send it to him, and he'd turn it back, he'd return it to me, and he'd go, I just have a few comments, which is, by the way, British speak for, I have ripped your paper apart. So he'd say, I just have a few comments, and then you'd open it up, and it'd just be bleeding red, just like oh my covered in red marks. So and I'm like a few. Huh? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I and I I ended up having to sit my supervisor down at one point, and I and I said to him like, "Look, I I come from a no nonsense background. You know what you say, you get what you get. So mm-hmm. if you think it's garbage, tell me this isn't going to work. But don't tell me 
I have a few mm-hmm. comments. Few, according to the dictionary, means two or three, and you've written like two or three hundred mm-hmm. <laughs> comments. Yeah. And yeah. it was, but I think it was a learning curve for both of us is that I needed him to mm-hmm. be blunt, but it was because other, I, I was sick of these surprises. And I think in a roundabout sort of way, it meant that he and I became more like equals rather than it being a boss subordinate relationship. Yeah. But it took a long time. And Mm -hmm. I think through that process, you know, it was hard. It was really, Mm -hmm. really hard. But, you know, I wouldn't have had the confidence at some point to basically put my foot down and say, you know, this isn't working. Not that you're a bad person, but like, I'm going to need you to word it differently and be more upfront with me. Otherwise we're just going to keep butting heads when we don't want to butt heads. And I I genuinely think our relationship was much, much, much better because of that. Well, it sounded like what you did when you established a boundary for what's okay, not okay. And for you, honest, being blunt is a value that you you, you cared. And I guess for your boss, it was, they're, they're trying to be more delicate. Um, yeah, but I think I think there's delicate and not telling the whole truth. And for uh, me, it just felt like half truths. And I don't mm, think that that's what he meant I, at all. I, I genuinely yeah. think he was trying to cushion the blow. But for me, it was like, mm-hmm. come and sit on this nice soft chair. And then, by the way, there's a thousand tacks on it underneath. So, oh, you know... Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think, I think it's like anything when you develop a relationship with somebody in in a work capacity, in a professional capacity. Obviously, you want to be respectful, but you you want to make sure that you can be in a place where you can provide constructive feedback so that you can learn to work together as a team, as opposed to feeling like you're in constant conflict with each other. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you? I, I, I'm always curious what your experience were with the with the widgets, you know, um, because they're we don't think like Americans, of course, and we don't think like them. But do you ever feel like you're inferior to your colleagues or your your boss because you know they're from Britain and you're from the U.S. or like or is like are there any like conflict in that regard in terms of like oh you're just an American like you don't think like us or like mm, we, I, we invented education? No, so, I think I um. I think in some respects, I found that, I don't know, I, it's a big question. I think from an academic standpoint, there were a lot of things that um, I realized I was inferior in terms mm-hmm. of uh, my academic expectations, mm-hmm. right? So um, I know one of the things we were going to talk about is um, kind of like the business that I'm, I'm creating. So um, I am creating a uh, business that's called the Oxford Method, and I mm-hmm. am basing it on modified versions of Oxford-based tutorials that I use with my clients to help prepare them for uh, university in the UK. So whether mm-hmm. that's a semester abroad, whether that's because they actually want to go to university in the UK and they want to understand the expectations. But the reason behind um, this idea is I realized Uh, When I moved to the UK back in 2007, I was completely unprepared, completely unprepared for what the expectations are. And what I realized is um, you're trained in the UK system to be an individual thinker and to think for yourself. And what I realized in in my education experience is that I've been trained to think for the professor. So I'm not for the professor, but 
I had been trained to write to the professor. So my whole mm-hmm. upbringing was, didn't matter if you had an opinion, you needed to please your professor. Mm-hmm. So if you think that your professor is more left-leaning, then you need to write a paper that's more left-leaning. If you think your professor is more conservative, then you need to write a paper that's more conservative because their opinion of you in your paper is going to dictate whether or not you get a good grade. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, and by the way, I didn't really have a lot of experience in writing anyway. Uh, my background mm-hmm. is in elementary education, so I had to be you know, I was great at presenting in front of, you know, groups of children and what have you, but I didn't have to write papers on it necessarily uh, and forget multiple choice. That's not even a thing in this country. Um, so I went to Sussex University and I uh, started taking this insanely intense master's course. And mm-hmm. I found out that at the end of my eight weeks, my first trimester, Um, I had two weeks to write two 5,000, research two 5,000 word papers in four weeks. And I had never Mm -hmm. written a paper longer than a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And I was going to have to do research and I was going to have to do, and I was going to have to have opinions and I was going to have to pick my own research topic. I'm like, what, what? And Mm -hmm. I remember being in class and being like, I don't even know what constitutes enough like reading for a paper that long. And so I asked in class, I said, well, how, how many, uh, you know, how many articles should we read for a 5,000 word paper? And my, my professor scoffed at me and he just went 10, but it was like, how could you be so immature to ask a question like that? And I was relieved that he gave me a number I could work off of. But what I realized is that I was going up against a system that I just was not prepared for. And what I also learned is that that one paper at the end of each course dictated what I got for that class. So there's no such thing as cumulative, cumulative learning where, you know, you don't get participation grades. If you show up for class or not, that's your business. You're a grown up. Um, if you do a good presentation or a bad presentation, no one cares. All that matters is that you figure out what your essay assignment is for that one class and whatever you get on that one paper assignment that takes your grade for that class. And that blew my mind. I had no I had no idea. Yeah. So I struggled. That was a really hard year for me. And I have always I know I talked to you about this before, but I'd always um, found that if I was under, you know, if I had, you know, SATs were always really tough for me because I don't do well on time tests. Doesn't mean I don't do well on tests. I just don't do well on tests I'm not prepared for that have a time clock associated with it. So this to me was like that, but for an entire year, um, you know, having to write a 20,000 word essay, having a supervisor that was gone. So I just had to figure out how to do it on my own. And that was miserable and horrible. Um, and anyway, getting through the doctoral program, teaching other American students or international students who I realized were also struggling because they had, there was no, there was no preparation for the program. And what I realized is, is it, you know, getting into a place like Oxford or any UK in the, in university is the easy bit. It's surviving and getting through to the finish line. That's the hard bit. And I kept thinking, wouldn't it be really nice if there was a program available to anyone where mm-hmm. they could take a program that's modified for their needs and their skill level and their interests where I can work them through the process and say, okay, you know, let's have, uh, I'm going to give you a weekly assignment, but instead of Mm -hmm. 2000 words, like you would at Oxford, it might be a thousand and I might give you smaller reading list and we can sort of work our way up to what the expectations would be if you were at a UK university and what that would look like so that when they get into that institution, they feel more prepared as opposed to going in and basically dealing with massive culture shock. So in your opinion, what would you say are like the biggest key tenets for creativity? Key tenets for creativity. Um, I think open-mindedness is a really big one. 
And I think um, having to be humble as well, because you can have a lot of really great ideas and many of them just don't work out the way that you Mm -hmm. want them to. And that doesn't mean that they weren't useful, but it might not be the right timing. It might be the right mark, not might, might not be the right market. Mm -hmm. Um, Might be that there's a pandemic. (laughs) So um, yeah, I would say being humble Uh, open-mindedness and also being willing to keep your eyes and ears open for things you might not have considered otherwise. You know, that thing about Mm. importance of pivoting and knowing when to pivot, right? If something's not working and you're not, you can't really quite figure out why it's not working because so-and-so did it and it seemed to work for them. And then somebody says, well, have you thought about this? And you're like, well, no. And you try mm-hmm. it, and maybe it works. It's like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I should pivot. There's an idea. Yeah. Um, so uh, your idea is fascinating, and I think you're you're heading towards the business aspect. How how would you apply your method to, let's say, you know, an organization's like having issues with creativity or just like. Um, trying to like pivot or move or change direction. Like how have you used that approach? So I'm used to doing this with students at the moment. So um, my pivoting when I was trying to figure out what my market looked like, at least initially for the Oxford method, um, I initially wanted to pitch this to uh, international programs at universities. And because I I'd studied in the international study abroad industry, I'd been a tutor. I mean, I'm sorry, I've been a lecturer. I'd also been a student and, that was a market I felt very, very comfortable with. Um, but in speaking to um, a dean at Kent State, who I know, um, she had advised me that maybe I might want to pivot my market to individuals who are a bit younger. And I said, I'm like, how young? And she said, I think high school. And I was like, okay, why do you think wow. high school? And she says, well, because A, parents have the money. So they want to um, make sure that they invest in the best possible education for their kids. And, you know, once you get to college, it's like you're in, right? So why would I why would I spend yeah. extra money on stuff when I'm here? Whereas yeah. the high school, you know, kids are trying to figure out what would be a good fit for them. They may or may not have considered international studies as a, as a consideration. I know definitely in, you know, places like Korea and stuff, they have uh, specific high schools uh, deliberately for uh, Korean students who want to go to school in the West. So that's another market that I'm considering as well. And if you know of any, hey, you feel free to write me directly. Um, but the point is that um, parents are willing to invest if they think the investment makes sense. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, if you're working with, you know, think of it more like a university prep program mm-hmm. where they obviously need to have demonstrate the maturity and their ability to, you know, follow through on assignments. But if you look at it from that lens, they're not that much younger than the clients you were considering before. But the other side of it as well is that I don't want to limit myself to that age bracket. If there are individuals like myself who did their bachelor's in the U.S. and then they're thinking about maybe doing a master's in the U.K., you know, obviously mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I reach out to those individuals as well. And in terms of the mm-hmm. business side, um, I think what... I would be interested in knowing is, you know, what's not working. So what what is it about the business aspect that you're, is causing you to come up across these these like roadblocks, so to speak? Um, 
are, are you used to because I know you and I have talked about this quite a bit is that in some business avenues some business markets and especially in politics it's kind of like tell me what I need to do so that I can get it done and yeah. it's almost like again it's this idea of like I just want the professor to tell me the answers so that I can mm-hmm. get it done and yeah. that might be okay if you need to turn around something quickly but you know what if the professor's wrong or what if you know the method that they're using isn't working maybe it's up to you to like stand up and say hey you know have you guys thought about maybe doing this instead and seeing if that works and i think that's where you know individuals in the social sciences can really be helpful is that they can say you know maybe we should look at things from a slightly different lens and give it a shot as opposed to just sticking to the pro quo and hoping that it works out so you know that could be a possibility Absolutely. I mean, that's the, the biggest challenge I run into in terms of like when we do creative research. It's, it's like I'm running to barriers. We're saying, oh, we've done the other way before. Why can't we stick to that? Because that works. And my thinking is always like, yeah, but, you know, it works for now. But don't you want to understand more and do better and be more effective? But a lot um, of people don't. They really don't. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, they just yeah. say, no, just just let's just get this over with. It's Friday. Uh-huh. I want to go home. I'm tired. Yeah, I get that. It's fr- yeah, frustrating. Um, how do you about? How do you? I guess this goes back to your second course. Like, what's needed to have that mentality change sh- shifted, or like, what's the best way to go about? Um, like, when you hit a, a head a roadblock, something like that, where someone was like, "No, I don't want to try anything new. This is what our client wanted in the past, and we will stick with it." Yeah, I mean, I've I've come across that to an extent where, and again, I, I have to base this on my experience working with university students and what have you, yeah. where um, I have to remind myself that I what they're doing with me is not the only thing on their to-do list. They've mm-hmm. got a ton yeah. of stuff yeah. on their plate. And so the fact that they're squeezing me in, I appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I want to make yeah. sure that they're getting the most out of it and they're getting their money's mm-hmm. worth. Yeah. Um, I think that the best I can do, and this is where the tutoring business also turns into a consulting business as well, Mm. is I can be honest and I can say, you know, you're more than welcome to do whatever you want to do. You're a grown up. It's your choice. Mm. Um, But if you're asking for my opinion, which is what they would do, is Mm. I'd say, you know, my experience and those of my colleagues have been X. um, And I, you know, if you choose that this is what you want to do instead, don't be surprised if the end result isn't exactly what it was you were looking for. Um, mm. And that's really the best I can do. I I can't change somebody. They have mm-hmm. to be in a position to want to be open to change. Yeah. The questions I always ask for me are, and I present to them is, what if it's not, what if it's not either or, but what if it's a both? Like, how can we find a way to have both what you want and what you know what I want and do in a way that benefits both of us? Um, I, I'm thinking in terms of like business um, because like a lot of times I find that it's fear that's driving the lack of creativity or the fear of failure or the fear the fear yeah. that's like the same fear that manifests for me when I presented a new methodology and they're like this is crap I'm like well let's sit and let's think on it but um, yeah yeah. I mean, I can yeah. remember um, having a conversation with a family member and um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just an example. And I was talking yeah. about um, kind of an ideology that I had issue with. 
Uh And um, she got quite defensive. Uh And what I was trying to get across was, you know, I'm not saying that you're a bad person. I was talking about an ideology. I wasn't talking about you. But I think there are people who, if they identify with a certain ideology, they take Uh it as a personal affront Uh rather than rather than being able to step back and go, oh, I never thought of it that way. And, you know, what what can you do with people who like that? I mean, I think that's the thing that's really interesting about anthropology is, you know, the whole point of the Mm -hmm. discipline is to make the weird normal and the normal weird. Mm -hmm. And so if I talk about history, for example, and I talk to a conservative relative and say something like, did you know that the Nazis were actually nationalists? They weren't actually socialists. Mm -hmm. They reappropriated the term socialism, but they were actually nationalists. And Uh the U.S. can be nationalist. And, you know, isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. And then the response is, were you saying Americans are Nazis? I'm like, I didn't say Americans were Nazis. I just think it's interesting that even within the ideology that we grew up in, there are extremes. And that's what I think is interesting. And I think that in history, we pick and choose. So we you know, maybe hear the word socialist, not understanding actually they're not socialists. They just reappropriated it. We decide to label them as socialists. Socialism is bad and ignore the, what they actually were was an extreme form of nationalism. And, you know, it's hard to have those conversations because yeah, you're just I, saying I, yeah. how it is. And you're, you're saying, isn't that really fascinating? Like, wow, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Isn't knowledge amazing? And uh, it doesn't, uh, in my case, it went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> <laughs> down really badly and and I have to be careful. So I have to I have to pick and choose. I need to this is the importance, right, of, of knowing your audience. Um in this case it was a, a relative I should have known better, but whatever. Um but being careful, um making sure that you think it through, that you howl at the door. <laughs> that you know what I mean. Um that you uh you know really gauge your your people skills um, because at the end of the day you want to make sure that it's a successful sale and not Mm -hmm. one where you end up putting your foot in your mouth you know so I mean that is such a great point because I guess what you're saying is data and facts are one aspect of creativity and the other aspect is understanding your audience because a lot of times you can like this is a lot too like you can tell them what the data is showing but if they don't believe it or they don't like have their own opinion, they're going to say, no, no, this is wrong. I know better. Like, so, so it's the tendency is to say, oh, this is truth. Like this, because it's truth is it. Um, but the better approach is saying, this is what we're finding. What, are, what is your perspective? How are we merging? Like, tell me more about like your problems. This will solve your underneath issues. Mm-hmm. But your, your, um, I can't like, ask me questions I want to ask. <laughs> it's just comforting over the place, but. What makes your approach distinct from an anthropologist perspective? Because I bet there's a lot of people working in creativity. And um, how has anthropology informed uh, the practice of anthropology informed the way you think about creativity and the way you work with your clients? I think it's definitely allowed me to embrace being a devil's advocate. And um, I love that. I really, really mm-hmm. love that. I love pushing the envelope for the purposes of getting people to um, think beyond their comfort zone. I, and I, I think that that is such an invaluable skill and it's an invaluable thing to have, you know, as a, as a person. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, one of the things I really enjoy doing with clients is um, they might come to me with a problem or we might talk about um, a particular assignment. You know, if I'm not, if I'm not doing, um, you know, tutorials with them, I might be um, helping them with their own paper assignments, for example. And I'll say things like, um, you know, you're telling me this and that's really interesting. But the thing that's coming into my mind is a completely different image than what I think you're trying to say. And I'm just wondering if there are ways in which we could work on rewording that so that the image you're trying to convey is the same image that's popping into my mind. So mm -hmm. that's a very like mellow way of doing that, obviously. Um, but mm -hmm. I can remember, um, and I know I've talked about this in previous episodes. Um, I taught a podcast episode on neopaganism and, um, mm -hmm. not podcast episodes, sorry, maybe, maybe in the future, um, a tutorial on neopaganism. And I was really mm -hmm. nervous about teaching this tutorial because there's a lot of taboos associated with it. Um, there's a, it was, and I was teaching it as a religion, uh, concept and as assignments. And it was always just assumed in, a lot of anthropology departments in the UK, it's like, unless it's, you know, Buddhism or kind of more of the mainstream religions, it doesn't, it's kind of looked down upon. And my thinking was, mm -hmm. well, why is it looked down upon? Maybe we should talk mm -hmm. about why it's being looked down upon. Mm -hmm. So I um, worked with my students on this and I think mm -hmm. some of them really liked it. Uh, one student really didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to win some, you're not going to win others. But what I wanted to talk about was why do you think this movement has become interesting in modern society? You know, something mm -hmm. that um, maybe was seen as sort of fairy tale material has taken mm -hmm. on a very strong political angle. Wow. And I want to understand, and it's really taken root in the feminist movement as well. Mm -hmm. So why is something that's always been seen as sort of, you know, pretend play for children now become something that actually has a very deep uh, political agenda? And I think pushing it and put, spinning it in that way maybe allowed those with more of a political background to maybe approach it in a, in a way that they're comfortable with, as opposed to being like, I can't believe we have to study this, you know? And then those yeah. students that actually were more kind of, they like that sort of, I guess, um, subculture type thing um it allowed mm -hmm. those are a bit more artsy and a bit more those are a bit more black and white to kind of come together and at least we could have a discussion about it and i thought that that was a a mm -hmm. good way to try to cover my bases right wow so do you think um you know i guess what you last saying about being being comfortable in the unfamiliar or the, un the unknown as being part of the creative exploration. Can you like explain a little bit more about why that's so important, um, especially what we were teaching about how, you know, looking at paganism from a new perspective that a lot of people feel uncomfortable about talking mm. or exploring? Um. I think for me, I think that there are, again, there are two types of people. There are those who, um, if they if they aren't familiar with something, they tend to shy mm -hmm. away from it. Mm -hmm. And then there are those people, if they're not familiar with something, it's almost like a magnet. It's like, I got to figure out why, why this is different, right? Why this makes me a bit like curious. And I've always mm -hmm. found that I fit more in that other camp. So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, some years ago, I was talking to another academic and um, mm -hmm. I mean, you and I grew up in the same area, so you're going to get this, but um, 
my uh, neighbors were from Iran. So, um, you know, in Northern Virginia, there's a massive, I think it's got like the second highest concentration of Muslim ex- expats in the U.S. And so, you know, our church shared a parking lot with a mosque across the street. And when I saw a woman with a hijab when I was little, I just figured that, that was those were her Sunday clothes. I was like, my Sunday clothes yeah. are a little cute dress and yours are, you know, that. And that's cool, right? Like I, my brain just like didn't go beyond that and then we went to lunch like that was the extent of it so um anyway i was talking to this woman about you know going to this wedding that my neighbors had and they had a dancer who came out who had candles on her head and i was joking about how my dad didn't know what to do because he didn't like the idea of having to put money in this woman's underpants basically and i was laughing at my dad being uncomfortable right but he wants to be respectful Uh and he doesn't know what to do and I remember yeah. her response and she turned to me and she goes, I'm, I'm so glad that um, you were able to get out of your comfort zone. And I was like, what? My comfort zone? This is where I grew up. I grew up in an area where this is like, what? And, I, and it just mm-hmm. made me realize that she was drawing assumptions of me based on how I look, based on how I sounded, da, 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 which everybody goes through that. I'm not anything mm-hmm. special. But it irritated me. And um, I think it breeds into this whole thing that, and I hope I'm not going off on too much of a tangent, that um, we all make assumptions of each other and we all assume certain things based on appearance or whatever. And, you know, that happens. So how do we try to um, kind of deal with that? And even even if it's irritating and just go, you know, I mean, I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not sidetracking too much. I mean, can you can you remind no, me of no, your question? Because yeah. I feel like I'm I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent. You know, I think you are, but you're going back to the beginning, which is like it makes sense because the assumption uncomfortableness builds on our our preconceived idea of what is normal and not normal. Yeah, but yeah, but and, like, what was your question? Because I re- I want to I want to get back into that. <laughs> Something about being comfortable with the unknown and like, how yeah. can you process? the creative side from being uncomfortable. Yeah. So I guess the thing, right? So it's like I was I was irritated and then I thought, okay, well, how can I um, learn from that experience, right? So I had to apply that to my own work. It's like just because I have a client that comes up to me and says, you know, whatever it is they want alone, I can't just assume their background mm-hmm. if I don't know yeah. them. So I think that's what I was trying to get back to is like... Um, I need to give it time for them to tell me a bit more about themselves so that I don't fall into that trap of making assumptions so that I can then create a program that allows them to feel like they're expanding and growing as opposed to just assuming, well, they wouldn't know anything about that because they're from name your place. Um, because mm-hmm. then I'm I'm just as bad as that woman who assumes something about me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's totally true. Uh, you know, that's, yeah, we do make a lot of assumptions on each other and on ourselves. Um, because I do remember growing up in, in, in Northern Virginia, a lot of, we were surrounded with lots of diversity. And for me, that's super comfortable. So, yeah, so, yeah. and it was like, oh yeah, like, yeah, of course we need more people. It's, it's being more normal. I think that my first experience being uncomfortable was, uh, I my in college, my parents moved down to North Florida because uh, I went to college in Florida. And when I was visiting them, I realized that I was literally the only Asian person like walking about and, you know, cause my parents are white, they adopted me. So for me being in a predominantly white community is fine, but wouldn't have a lot of different 
as a group and ethnicity, uh, mm-hmm. like I always felt like we're all like the same. But I didn't realize my Asianness until I actually visited North Florida mm-hmm. at the time where mm-hmm. there was like predominantly like 90% white and you know, you know like basically no Asians or you know very few Hispanics at the time and it it felt really really uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, it's interesting you said because when I first moved to the UK, I mean, I'm, uh-huh. I'm white as a ghost. Like me and uh-huh. the son are not friends. I tried; it's just never going to happen. And I, so I moved to Southern England. Was like Whitey McWhiteville, uh-huh. and I remember it was like everyone was named Mary or John. This <laughs> is like this giant. And I, I for the, I felt like look at me, right? Like I felt like very aware how I looked and I told my friend called her up I was joking I was like you know what you're right we really do all look the same <laughs> it was just like there was just nothing there was just the samey samey and it, don't get me wrong it was nice it was just uh, come on yeah. it's like mix it up a bit it just seemed like you know, just weird I don't know yeah you know right I guess my question for you is I, we do, what do you do if you're stuck or you, have, you work with people who are not, they want to, they don't want to go into the uncomfortableness. Like they don't want to go in that creative. They want to stick with what they're known. And like, how do you basically partner with them to do like a win-win strategy or, or like, how do you connect with them on that level? Yeah. I, I try to find out. So I'm, I'm very client centered in the work that mm-hmm. I do. So, um, so I, I deliberately want clients to sign up for free consultations. And I always mm-hmm. say like, if you want to talk to me, please arrange a consultation first because I want to know a bit about you. And then I can decide whether I think this is a good fit because if they come up to me and say that, you know, they thought Mussolini was a hero, I'll say, I don't think this is going to work. But yeah. if they say, you know, I might be wrong. It's like, okay, well, maybe we could. I don't know if we're going to work. But, you know, point is, I want to see what their background's like. I want to see what their expectations are. And I can tell pretty early on whether it's going to be a good fit. Um, You know, I I think uh, one of the things I've learned about the tutoring industry, uh, at least from the West perspective, and I I think in the East, it's quite different, really, from what I understand, little bits and bobs so far, is that in the West, when it comes to tutoring, People want to get, they want to pay less for a whole lot more. So tutoring is one of those things where they just want to get it one and done. And Mm -hmm. in a thing like what I'm offering, which is an actual program where you've got to, you know, pay in advance because it's a program and it's a lot of hours being put into this. Yeah. You are able to weed out those who are, who really see that value in the work that you do between those that are more into the one and done category. Mm -hmm. So in some respects, um, it kind of solves itself. Um, When you say this is the program that I offer, these are the expectations, you know, my terms and conditions say that, you know, you're going to need to show up to all of your appointments because these are Mm -hmm. appointments. Um, This is not just, I felt like showing up one day and and now I don't Mm -hmm. feel like it anymore. So when you put it in that perspective, um, you learn really quickly who's committed and who's not committed. And um, so in a weird sort of way, you don't end up, at least so far, I haven't had to deal with that yet. Um, so yeah. fingers crossed, obviously. You know, like, because that I work, I do psychic, uh, I help students get their PhDs. That's my my fun. Cause, um, yeah. And I, I come across that too in clients where there are like two types. Those who put the money where the mouth is, so they invest. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. those who try to negotiate for a cheaper deal. And yep. for the longest time, I was like, okay, no, I'll work with, you know, I'll, I'll negotiate with those who like ask for less. But the one thing that I noticed about my experience doing that is like when, when you, when they put a discount into your service, they treat you as a discount and they don't really value your work the way they, that you become your value. And I end up doing triple the workload and I get zero return in kind of emotional investment from that. So like I, I've learned, like, I don't know about your experience with, when you're consulting too, but like with my experience, like people who ask for discount, I automatically say, no, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm walking away because yeah. it, it mentally, it, it doesn't really nourish me like in helping because I, because I, I do this because I love it. And I just, just getting the experience and, you know, uh, helping them through the process, it, it's, it, it kind of makes the process fun for me, but um, it goes back to like how people value the 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 worth of the the, the the effort through money, and I think money plays a huge part in the way they think they like how much they want to invest in it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, that's kind of tangent, but yeah, what we were saying kind of made me think of that. Yeah, no, and I I think money is an important aspect. I mean, I've <clears throat> when I've been thinking about what does my market look like, mm-hmm. I tested out a few things. You know, I went on Craigslist and things that I knew weren't going to cost me anything. It wasn't even going to cost me any time. Um, and I, I learned pretty quickly what I anticipated. I was hoping I'd be wrong, but I wasn't. Um, yeah. That people are looking for a, a quick fix. And yeah. a quick fix at a very cheap price. And yeah, um, yeah. couldn't quite grasp their head why a PhD from Oxford with years of experience would require five times what they're asking for. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm charging crazy amounts. I'm actually charging quite reasonable amounts, but um, they're they're yeah. looking for babysitter prices. So yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not a babysitter. So that's why I won't be charging. I'll be charging more than that. So um, those kind of play into it as well in terms of um, understanding what you're worth and what your base minimum is and, and being comfortable with saying this isn't going to work. Um, and I think it's hard when you're doing, um, when you're starting a business because uh, you want to get, you know, money's money and you want to get whatever business you can get. But uh, sometimes no business is better than bad business. So, yeah. you know. I want to wrap this up by asking, you know, the just the question that I really thought about, like, what would, what would be your advice for someone who is going through this pandemic they're about to go to like pick a college or deciding maybe not pick a college. You know, we talked earlier about how um, college should be a pyramid scheme. Um, and it's kind of like, do you, damn if you do and damn if you don't, because you definitely need a college degree. Yeah. And I think college. I need to be careful. I don't, I don't want to cut you off. I, I don't think mm-hmm. university is necessarily a pyramid scheme in that sense. I think, I think that the pricing in the U.S. is extortionate and no teenager should ever be in that kind of debt. I think that that is Mm -hmm. criminal and I stand by that. Um, But that's a bit different than those that are maybe going down the PhD route and thinking that there's going to be all of these opportunities in academia. And in fact, there there unfortunately just isn't there. There isn't the funding and, and that's just the reality of it. Yeah, I think even with an undergraduate degree today, what I think the latest figure is like forty thousand dollars in debt for a bachelor's degree, which is at insane. Least. Um, at yeah, least. at least. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like they're in this precarious position where they need the education, but that education basically like a lifetime of, of servitude to yeah. the, the, um, the student loans and everything. So 
like what would be your what would be like your advice for someone who is in that position or like deciding what they want to do or you know how are they picking about college make you run into that a lot of times in what you do but like what would be your primary advice for something like that that's a good question um, if I was talking with a potential or a client and they they were concerned about finances, which FYI, very important. Um, well, there's a myriad of things you could do. Um, and I'm going to plug my friend here, uh, Abigail Selden, who runs a company, uh, she used to run a company or an app called College Abacus that deals with sort of finances and how much do university fees cost. And um, there's a myriad of widgets out there right now that provide that from the US side. Um, but if you are really, really in a crunch and you're not sure how you're going to um, be able to pursue that degree that you want without um, ending up in, in a position where financially you, you feel like you're going to be in trouble. I definitely talk to as many people as you can. Um, yeah. There are... <sighs> There's a hundred ways to skin a cat, right? So you could easily go to university in Europe, for example, in Scandinavian countries where you can get an amazing education in Norway and Sweden. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, the fees are practically free in some places and you just have to pay for your accommodation and your books. So, you know, my friend did that for her master's and, you know, from her perspective, she was debt free um, in dealing with her master's. She obviously still had to pay for her bachelor's in the U.S. So, you know, some people go to university in Germany where, you know, education is subsidized. So consider those options. It's it's not, it shouldn't rule out just because it's not within your your country. Don't, you know, plenty of people in other countries are comfortable going abroad. So why can't you be that person? Um, yeah. You know, there are instances where people, uh, at least in the U.S. side, they might go to junior colleges for a couple of years and then they get their AA. And then maybe they might go to university for the second two years. Um, but the, the point is, um, be willing to expand your horizons as much as possible. Okay. Obviously, there's that fear in the for the U.S. market where yeah. students are concerned that if they get a degree from outside the U.S. that it won't be accepted in the job market when they return. Mm -hmm. That might be the case. That might not be the case. But that's why it's so important to do your homework. Um, look at other individuals who maybe uh, LinkedIn is a great source, other individuals who maybe got their degrees from other universities and then see if you can find a way to talk to them and see how their degrees may be transferred over. But the point is that you don't have to, just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean that you have to do it. I think that's really what, the, what it boils down to. Just because everybody else robs a bank doesn't mean you need to rob a bank. You, you need that degree. You need to get that education. That isn't. Then that is what needs to be done. But um, see, see what other other options that might be available to you that you wouldn't have considered otherwise. See what other funding opportunities might be available because you're international. I mean, I think that's what I'm saying is just do your homework and and have yeah. a clear idea of okay, what are the numbers going to look like when I leave? What is the interest rate going to be like? Because that's the other thing. Some people when they finish their degrees in the U.S., the interest rates were like seven or eight percent, which is absurd. Yeah. So, you know, keep those things in mind as well. And, and um, you know, revisit it. Take time where you can. Um, and don't be afraid to take some time off. That's the other thing. My husband took some time off before he did his bachelor's degree. And he didn't do his undergrad until he was at least 23. But it's because he wanted to do it for the right reasons as opposed to doing it because he felt like he had to. And so when he did go in for his bachelor's, he'd had about six years to figure it out. 
And he ended up getting a, a job in the field he wanted because he had waited. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, don't don't be afraid to be different, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think like the saying in U.S. like there are many ways to skip in a cat. Um, mm. So, yeah, and it's true. I, I think there's, there's no one direct route to get what you need. And um, even uh, a Ph.D. in business, not a lot of people care about your degree. They care like how you can help them or like what your skills. That you they care about your experience. And that's the other thing I noticed with a doctorate is that I, I finished and I had all this teaching experience and it was incredibly great. It was good, right? But um, the yeah. industries I was applying for didn't really weren't looking for people with teaching experience. So they were like, okay, yeah, you've got yeah. teaching experience, but you don't have experience in name your thing. You've just been in yeah, school yeah. forever. You're a, you're a professional student. And uh, yeah. that was also another thing to keep in mind is if you do continue with your education, think about how you can also build up your work portfolio at the same time. Because when you leave, mm -hmm. the last thing you want is to come across as a professional student. You actually want to come across as a professional who also has all these additional qualifications as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I pivot from mine is using research to help them understand, like, you know, to like validate what I'm saying, saying this is actually sound because X, Y, Z, and this is from my experience. And they're always like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense when you're saying it. So, you know, like, I, I still was a huge believer in going, using education and the experience in business because, you know, like, it really taught me to think differently. And I can totally see how um, how it has kind of leveraged me in terms of creativity. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, but I, I um, you know, I think the closing point is I feel like in the end, like, it doesn't really matter where you're going. We're going towards the same place anyway. Um, like we can make, you can make lots of left turns, but in the end, you're, you're going to get there. As long as and, it's not um, a circle, like an endless circle. <laughs> that would be <laughs> yeah, pretty miserable. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, did you ever thought when you were a kid, I was kind of like, things like, what am I going to do with my life? What's going to yeah, happen? Yeah, I was going to be a mermaid. And uh, <laughs> I was also going to be an artist. I'd be like a mermaid artist. Um, yeah, I was going to be a teacher. That was the thing. I was in yeah. fourth grade. I really wanted to be a teacher. And I, I think I've definitely stuck with that in some fashion. Definitely not the way I thought. My daughter wants to be a doctor. And I'm like, go for it. <laughs> Uh, it's much doctor. more mature than my choices. So. <laughs> she's already getting her start. Oh yeah, um, she's got her little jacket she wears, and she takes her oh, temperature, and yeah, that's so cute. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it, those look great. Having good dreams. Yeah, well, why wow. not practical ones? You know, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to wanting to be the Little Mermaid. <laughs> have you? Do you have any influence in that? I wonder. <laughs> We've been calling her Dr. Emily. Oh, it's Dr. Emily. Oh. oh, yeah. Yeah, we feel really sad. We need a... She goes, Mommy, you need a plaster. I'm like, I need a Band-Aid. No, Mommy, you don't need a Band-Aid. need a plaster. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so cute. Yeah. Um, well, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your guest host, Dr. Kizzy Shop. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Juan for... Uh, indulging me this afternoon and additional information on today's topic will be available in the show uh, notes and uh, if you are watching this on YouTube please feel free to hit the subscribe button and leave a comment in the box below um, if you enjoy the show feel free to support this podcast by becoming a patron 
where uh, for little as one euro per month you can get or one pound access. per month. Yeah. Oh, just kidding. Or <laughs> <laughs> one dollar. That's just kidding. Oh my gosh. Um, I saw the pounds. I was like euros. <laughs> um, one pound per month, you can get early access to new episodes as well as live bonus episodes as much, much more. It's a contribution like yours that help our team uh, to keep the show going. So otherwise, that's it for now. And thanks for listening and have a great week.